Hello and welcome to the Technocast, a podcast series showcasing research from across the arts and humanities. I'm Edwin Gilson. Our guest this week is Samuel Hertz, who carries on our theme of senses. Samuel is a researcher and sound artist undertaking a PhD at Royal Holloway, and he is particularly interested in the intersection of sound and environment. I'll be back a little bit later for a conversation with Samuel, which covers everything from recording the sound of climate change to exhibiting his work in the International Space Station and a little bit of doom metal as well. But first, here's Samuel. How can new forms of environmental listening develop not only more complex views of ecological interaction, but also new perspectives on sound? My techni doctoral project begins inside the field of bioacoustics, the study of the production of sound by animals, as well as how they respond to sound in their own environs. This research engages with unique perspectives on, and relationships between, the different scales of space and time that are embedded within this acoustic approach to critical ecosystems. This relatively new approach of listening to alteration within the environmental sciences is accompanied by shifts in the understanding of sound itself. Here, sound is a plane of vital entanglements between life and landscape. I track how researchers map these complex views of space and time through interviews, shadowing ongoing research within both fieldwork and laboratory contexts, and profiling the technologies that are used to capture and analyze these various forms of acoustic data. My overarching project is based in examining this sonic turn within the environmental sciences and the variety of sound-based methods used to evaluate a changing planet that are encouraged by increases in data storage capacities and portability of recording devices. This new area of sonic engagement, therefore, sees a world whose threatened habitats, conservation preserves, and urban spaces are being filled with acoustic sensors and autonomous recording devices. And these devices themselves are repeatedly filled to their digital brim with ever-expanding sets of acoustic data that describe the rhythms of local weather systems, repeated and irregular behaviors of vocalizing animals, and reverberations of infrastructural interventions, accumulated snapshots of the sonic world to which we all contribute. These huge bundles of recordings when stitched together, transposed, stacked, and juxtaposed, highlight complex interactions, not only among the sounds of humans and more than human animals, but also the industrial, political, and social fabrics into which sound is tightly woven. I argue that many of the sound-based research models and experimental designs offer a much more complicated and thorough way of considering the role of sound in environmental and climate politics, as well as broader possibilities of what we might call a politics of material listening. 
And while we should be skeptical about treating sound as a panacea, this sonic materialism opens a pathway through which we can hear new lines of inquiry, relation, and interaction across multiple ecological strata. Besides their use in areas of conservation ecology, these new bundles of sonic data are also mobilized to inform large-scale infrastructural projects that aim to mitigate environmental change, such as the construction of wildlife bridges that attempt to allow animals to cross over or through built environments. In this context, sound informs broader assessments about whether the habitat-focused goals have been achieved, as well as material considerations, such as sound dampening walls or experimental construction materials that involve alteration to both built and natural landscapes for the purposes of crafting project-specific, idealized sonic environments. Soundscape interventions are complicated. Humans have, and continue to, produce so much industrial and urban noise that render habitats inhospitable that there is a well-identified need to mitigate or control sound at an extraordinary number of scales and sites. However, a healthy dose of skepticism is needed in all cases related to soundscape management. The control of sound through noise ordinances and industrial noise allotments, for example, is, historically, a site of easy co-option in the enactment of exclusionary race and class-based violence. And in most cases, these environmental sound mitigation projects involve further landscape and ecosystem alteration in order to manage sound whose origin is human and human infrastructural in the first place. Therefore, these new categories of acoustic data can also be mismanaged, either by accident or for opportunistic or even nefarious reasons. This is why my project also tracks ways in which acoustic data finds its way into conservation politics and links it to wider discussions on the ethics of environmental sensing and environmental computation. What is material listening, and what can it mean for the environmental sciences? My project is grounded in shifting the understanding of sound from its association as an ephemeral phenomena to one that is resolutely material. In a way, understanding sound as a living layer of interaction. Beyond the ways in which acoustics might help measure invisible environmental changes, it also extends and expands our understanding of sound's entanglement with other environmental shifts that we might more commonly consider to be physical or material. This shift in the sole understanding of sound as a pressure that acts on bodies to an understanding that additionally encompasses sound as a sensory material that exists within and throughout bodies is what allows us to read these complex interactions. We can understand sound, then, as transgeographic media, a term sourced from the research of Daniela Medina Polk, as it interacts with and bridges multiple, overlapping, and coincident geographic scales and layers, 
This allows us to read diverse information from its fluctuation over space and time. A material and transgeographic approach to sound, for example, may amplify a sort of landscape archive. Birds adapt their songs in concert with physical barriers in their surrounding area, such as changing call type to avoid reverberance or absorption in different types of forests. However, there is a time lag both in song adaptation and in the learning of new songs across successive generations. Therefore, when a landscape is altered, existing bird songs have a relationship to landscape features which may no longer exist. In recently deforested areas, for example, we may still hear the pure tone projections initially adapted to be audible amidst the reverberance of tree trunks that are no longer there. And as the songs begin to adapt to new environments, which does not always happen uniformly, we hear a multiplicity of overlapping geographic and material histories represented through song. Because the ways in which these calls change are not arbitrary, they indicate a constant interplay between song flexibility and the diverse aspects of shifts in landscape to which they respond or react. Sound, therefore, articulates the constant negotiation between animal and environment, and at the same time, may also be an archive of internal and generational sensory landscapes. The relationship between sound and environmental collapse is often characterized as a great silencing, a slow decrescendo which implies dwindling populations. Here, sound becomes a symbol for a dying planet. The contention of my work, however, is that sound is not symbolic. It is itself an essential environmental layer, bound and woven throughout all others. While silencing does describe some potential outcomes of environmental collapse, such as extinction, understanding sound through a binary lens of presence and absence, or simply more or less sound, erases the possibility for sensing the in-between moments where slow violence threatens before silencing. What bioacoustics shows is that it is not just the fact that sound changes in response to degrading ecosystems or deforested hills. The particularities of how, why, when, and in what ways the adaptations manifest indicate important transgeographic information about broader networks of environmental impact. When we look at bioacoustics terminology for the behavior of sound, for instance, such as attenuation, refraction, absorption, and masking, they are not only physical descriptions, they demarcate positions of environmental knowledge in and of themselves. They illustrate different ways in which sound is augmented as it travels through and in between different landscapes. 
and sensitivity to the sometimes subtle ways in which altered landscapes affect the trajectories of sound is what, in many cases, determines the adaptive success of both vocalizers and listeners. However, it is not only landscapes that shape sound. Sound also has the potential to reshape landscapes. Noise from industrial sites, for instance, obscures animal communication, causing them to move further afield for the health of the population. In turn, this spatial adaptation affects a number of other bundled environmental conditions. For instance, seeds are no longer dispersed through consumption and excrement, and retreats of animal populations in response to these inadequate acoustic conditions leads to a lack in soil fertilization. Here, not only is sound at the heart of an otherwise eminently observable relocation of animal populations, but also a direct factor in a slow depopulation of flora. And even if the offending environmental noise is mitigated or removed completely, pollinating and seeding activities do not return in a linear fashion, if at all. Blocks are created in transgenerational sense and episodic memory that live on in animal populations after the noise itself has dissipated. And insofar as these blocks are retained in a generational sensory ecology, they are also represented in the lingering loss of biodiversity in plant life. These are the ways in which sound is intricately woven into the fabric of multi-species support systems. It is a vibrant, interactive, and material flow through which geographic and landscape knowledge is shared. Ultimately, the techno-scientific approach on which my research focuses brings to light expansive, new uses for environmental sound. But these approaches are incomplete without shifting conversations on sound to encompass the distinct material relationships between sounds, animals, and landscapes. Sound is not only indicative of the changing conditions of our planet, but helps shape the very conditions of ongoing life itself. So, welcome Samuel, and uh, thank you for your, your great contribution there. And, um, and we find you in Germany today, don't we? Uh, could you explain what you're doing there? Sure, yes, thanks so much for having me. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm currently in Germany, I'm in uh, Dortmund right now, as I'm uh, doing some touring productions um, with, the, with a piece that I've created um, and been performing over the last uh, two or three years called Doom, uh, which, which is created with my um, choreographic uh, collaborator named Leighton Lachman. Um, and Doom is a, it's a, it's a performance piece um, which has a, a very heavy sound focus. And a lot of uh, the contention of Doom and the focus of it is on ways of listening and understanding and feeling and sensing the extremely small registers of change which are implicit within the way climate violence works 
uh, as well as implicit within the ways that we should be orienting understandings of climate change, of environmental change and climate uh, collapse in policy discussions or the ways in which we can kind of start to approach remedying, let's say, the, the effects of, of environmental change. So doom is a way of kind of, in a performance, there's a registers of, of very small actions, there's registers of very large actions, some things more apparent to audience members and some things less apparent. What, what sort of happens in the piece itself is um, eventually all of our sort of performers kind of coalesce in the center and we turn ourselves into a, a doom metal band and perform a, a kind of crushingly loud 30 minute concert uh, in the middle. The idea being that, um, you know, I was very inspired. I, I don't come from a, from a metal uh, music background, but I was very inspired by the ways in which when, when sound is amplified to such a high degree, the very, very precise and very small changes in sound become immediately embodied and sensually available as the register as kind of huge climactic changes uh, within the body. So we sort of started to understand uh, performing sound at this level to be one way of kind of illustrating how to understand what these seemingly insignificant changes mean. This can be, you know, when we're playing the ever so slight movement of a finger across a string registers as a kind of like horrendous vibration across the room or intersects with some kind of harmonic feedback that someone else is performing. Anything that you do, any sort of small change in the position of your shoulder changes this kind of wild amplified feedback network and it starts to resound through all the other bodies and all the other objects in the space interesting i guess if people if people thought about doom metal they'd think of this kind of absolute cacophony not something that has these kind of nuances and little subtleties that that really get played out in that but um, yeah and it explains the name of your piece of course as well yes <laughs> sorry yeah. sorry go on i interrupted you no 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 i just um the, the only other thing is you know it's it's it, it is a lot about how we approach time. I think it's 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 not a coincidence that, you know, genre, musical genres with the name doom in front of them, there's also doom jazz, for example, tend to be, you know, glacially paced. I think the re there is a reason for that. And I think it has something to do with this kind of stretching of time that for us is also a modality that allows us to step through time slowly so if we have these kind of small small changes writ large we also have this kind of stretch time that provides a kind of backdrop against which to see these stretched moments and feel these small changes so so doom is our sort of time time stretching amplified <laughs> experiment and wow it's, i didn't it's, know about doom great. jazz i must say i need to do some <laughs> some uh, research on that one I think it's a really wonderful. Uh, it's a really wonderful genre. It's it, yeah. It's really interesting. It has this the the rhythm and the the tempo of it is is kind of unbearably slow. Um, <laughs> okay. It's it's kind of an amazing listening experience. You obviously cover the climate crisis in your work and in your presentation, but how do you go about recording the sound of climate change? That seems to me like a, a very difficult, insurmountable task, given how 
difficult climate change can be to grasp in any respect because it's often moving quite slowly or these processes are unfolding quite gradually. How do you mm -hmm. kind of go about that or how have practitioners gone about that? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I think there's, um, yeah, well, th there's there's quite a number of answers to that question, which I think is really interesting. And I think it gets to the central point of how I've sort of delimited my my focus for my project. So in on the topic of recording climate change, I think there's this sort of historic, or maybe historic, meaning like, let's say past the past 30, 40 years of I would say almost maybe the best word is stereotype of sound artists uh, and, and scientists alike who kind of approach recording climate change as wanting to really hear the sounds of the, you know, the very prototypical uh, climactic events that we sort of understand to be indicative of climate change. So glacial calving, for example, or recording the sounds of deforestation, the literal extractive practices um, that cause it. So the anthropogenic or, 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 or uh, technophonic aspect of climate change as well, recording factories. Uh, the, other, the other side, you know, when it comes to, um, for example, more than, more than human animal populations, is to, in a way, it's it's a little bit of a contradiction in terms, but recording disappearance, for example. So the availability of, of recording technologies makes it so that we, we can, in a way, hear disappearance because now we have the capacity to set uh, very solid baselines for sound. So as, as more and more recordings are made, you can start to hear sound fade away. I mean, in some cases. And this is where it gets a bit complicated because it's my understanding that in a lot of these cases, this this uh, if we want to hear what climate change sounds like, I mean, these are one of the out, this is, is a way of hearing some of the outward effects, as in these are kind of like the most audible or imminently uh, apparent. However, I do think that this is a little bit I may be cynical is the word because in a way, if I think if we're serious about understanding the, the, the nuances of environmental change, both from a perspective of understanding what violence is, uh, you know, how violences are rendered on, on both human and, and more than human populations, but um, also on the other side, how to, how to approach um, remediating, let's say, if that's, if that's uh, a, a possibility at this point is to understand the 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 nuances of how this changes work and this is where i think the work in bioacoustics becomes extremely important because when you take into account this material approach to sound i think that a, a better way maybe better isn't the word but but, but a, a more nuanced and therefore for me more meaningful and much more complex way to understand and and listen to let's say climate change is actually to start understanding and listening to the ways in which um, sound functions on a material layer so for example the 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 uh, one or two examples i gave in the in the segment before this which show the the 
very direct but somehow also diffracted relationship between sound and plant life for example which is also an aspect of change but it's uh it's one that is resolutely material and it's one that's also much harder to see it's also one that happens on the way to these larger violences um so it's you know if we start at zero and total environmental collapse is 10 we take these small changes in plant life of of areas or even subtle shifts in in bird in bird song that are indicative of smaller changes that are accumulating we start to understand the the, the stacking of those changes as as for, for for me i should say i understand the stacking of these changes as what's really behind climate change or environmental collapse and so therefore i think it's when we talk about listening to climate change or listening to environmental change in a way it makes more sense to understand to to interrogate what listening what we mean by listening in the first place in that sentence because it may be that listening in this sense is actually not really an, an oral act i mean it may not be um ear-based it might be that it involves sound and so we kind of properly term it listening but it might be actually understanding what material layers are are impacted by changes in sound rather than understanding it as a listening activity in and of itself mm -hmm. which i think is the temptation of a lot of especially sound arts practitioners who yeah release the sound of of calvin glaciers which you know which does properly illustrate the the severity of a of a rapidly changing planet but i think bioacoustics kind of starts um in a way before that i mean they're different they're different phenomena they're different scenarios so i don't want to like heavily um <laughs> mm. correlate like glaciers and 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 birdsong i think but i think uh yeah i think hopefully that's 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 clear how can you how can you kind of track those changes in say bird populations without using a kind of immense span of time or the changes happening that quickly that you can actually monitor those changes within a shorter amount of time? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. Um, I guess my answer would be, it depends. Okay. <laughs> um, I mean, there are, there are kind of significant, when we talk about birds, for example, a, a lot of the researchers I'm speaking to recently um, for my, for the, the, the field work I'm involved in are primarily um, ornithologists. So a lot of this is also coming from uh, the, the realm of birds. Um, Where's that field work situated? Sorry, I think people would be interested to know that. Oh, sorry. Yeah, the, it's, it's beginning at the Max Planck Institute for Ornithology, um, which is um, in Bavaria, uh, which is now sort of, sorry, reformed as the um, Max Planck Institute for Biological Intelligences. Um, but uh, the, it used to be the Ornithological Center. Um, and that's in, yeah, in Bavaria. And then I will be continuing um, fieldwork at uh, Cornell at the uh, Yang Center for Conservation Bioacoustics, which is also um, not, uh, I think, had its origins as an ornithological center, but is now properly sort of um, pan-species uh, bioacoustics. Okay. Yeah, the um, the question of time. Well, well, well. First off, yes. I mean, it's it's 
because these studies have to be done over such long periods of time, it's extremely um, susceptible to this idea of shifting baseline syndrome, which I think is pervasive throughout any of the environmental sciences. Essentially that, you know, the best time to have started these studies would be yesterday, not mm. today. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and it just so happens that in the course of uh, industrial human history, we developed the these uh, expansive and and robust recording technologies and storage solutions. You know, after hundreds of years of industrialization, <laughs> so mm -hmm. the in a, in a way, a lot of the damage has been done, and we're not exactly starting from any sort of even even though it's also a fiction, or, you know, a a, a pure. Uh, pre-industrial environmental state from which to base the research. That's, that said, there are some changes which do register quite quickly. I mean, for example, the, the relationship um, between the changes in, in birds' songs, um, the adaptations you know, it depends on on species. So the the adaptations can can happen fairly quickly. I mean, bird song is also very flexible because, of course, it's they um, are also changing based on season. And and birds are are um, again, this is a very like um, lumping a lot of species into one um, one fake species. But for the sake of argument, bird song is fairly flexible because they do change from season to season. For example, um, there's also different scenarios by which the calls have changed. So there's there's a certain amount of uh, flexibility within songs anyway, that make some changes immediate, more immediately apparent. Um, what's interesting in some of these papers is, is it's actually, um, and in conversations with the scientists who are, who are working on them, in a way it's, it's in some cases, not even necessarily the changes themselves, but also the ways in which these changes kind of cycle down through different generations, which again, is not a, not necessarily a huge length of time, but in there's one, uh, two, uh, two researchers with whom I work at the Max Planck Institute authored a paper recently on this to see whether the the original birds original calls would return after the Tegel airport in Berlin was shut down ah, okay. and they found that within I think two years after the um, airport was shut down some species and imme almost immediately returned also to to migration habits that had been sort of like previously recorded and also their calls had returned to ones that like um, the the or not their calls themselves sorry the time of singing per day had had kind of shifted back to uh, match the location of species in other parts of the world where there are no airports and but many species didn't uh, and this was already I think only a two year study so there are some there's some amount of um, duration that I think can be uh, accounted for in these shorter studies. But yeah, I think that the, there's there is a kind of issue with the duration. And it's, it's, it's an interesting one, because it because, you know, and, and part of the reason why I'm so fascinated with bioacoustics is that it really does have to take this really extreme temporal approach to sound. So we don't understand understand sound as 
kind of any individual action. So this is kind of contrary to this idea of ephemerality, because sound in this sense becomes not even really any individual action, almost not even any individual day. It becomes the behavior of sound in the, in the words of the kind of acoustic ecologist as its own soundscape over drastically long periods of time. And this is, a, I think, a strikingly new understanding of sound. However, the time-based component is problematic when you look at it on the scale of environmental collapse, which happens at its own scale and doesn't have any responsibility to keeping time with the, with, with the environmental science assessment. So hmm. um, that's where I think there's a, um, yeah, a lot of, a lot of tension or pressure in the environmental sciences that use sound that have to, yeah, work against essentially this ticking clock. For sure. Well, you mentioned some of the interesting places that you've worked in. Um, others include the International Space Station and the Pacific Ocean, um, two kind of polar extremes there. Uh, how do these sure. opportunities come about? How do those in particular come about? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, um, the uh, the International Space Station. Um, yeah, this is a, uh, a small, a very small sculpture. It's uh, that that I made with my collaborator, uh, Carmelo Pampolonio, who, uh, yeah, we made this um, one centimeter cubed sphere, basically with a small uh, laser engraving on it, which is the sound of our voices um, reflected off of the surface of the moon uh, using a large radio telescope. And we're, as we're bouncing this uh, sound material, on its return to, uh, well, on its way uh, outbound and then back from the moon, it's sort of the quality of the sound material that we're sending is shifted by um, atmospheric, electromagnetic, and climate conditions in all of the receiving areas. So when we send a signal out, we have you know five or six recording partners who are all receiving the same signal and then pass us back their recordings. So we have five or six different kind of electromagnetically variant versions of the same piece. And we've done some compositions with it and some, some performances. And the the sculpture on the ISS was was picked to be part of a, a group show that was sent to the ISS of very small sculptures. So that was the that was this oh. uh, this contribution. Yeah. Um, in the Pacific Ocean is this project uh, called Radio Amnion, which is an ongoing project by Joel Toms, who's a, a Canadian artist, um, which is a, a speaker and light array that is installed on a scientific research vessel, which is uh, two kilometers deep under the under the Pacific Sea. Um, and Joel has been running, I think, at least... Uh, maybe a year and a half or something as a series of commissions for works that are sort of performed um, at that at that depth, which have to do with the kind of like oceanic materiality and investigating questions of um, yeah, what the relationship is between you know these sort of deep sea interactions and also on this kind of climate scale, but you know from the pers from the sunken perspective, which I think is one that's not often uh, that's not often investigated. So, 
yeah, this was, uh, I had also, uh, was very um, happy to have been asked to do a commission for this, uh, for this vessel as well. And you have an interesting life, <laughs> some, <laughs> some, some uh, very fascinating places that you've exhibited in and, um, and indeed visited and worked in as well. So yeah, really interesting to hear about all of that. And, um, and yeah, thank you again for taking the time to, um, to submit your, your contribution and, and talk today. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a, always a pleasure. Thank you again to Samuel for that very stimulating contribution and conversation. If you would like to get involved and maybe make your own podcast for Technicast, please do email technicaster, that's technicast with an ER at the end, at gmail.com. And keep your ears peeled for more episodes on the way. Goodbye.